This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to Yusra El-Bagir. She is a journalist and she's been covering the Sudan uprising, in my opinion, more obsessively than anyone else. She's from Sudan, she's been on the ground, she had to leave, she's been back and forth. And she's going to be telling us how the uprising, which initially looked good, it toppled Bashir, is now turning sour with a paramilitary force turning on the people, firing on unarmed civilians and slaughtering the people that fought to start the uprising in the first place. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popularfront or popularfront.co slash support. Um, so I guess if you can just start at the beginning and explain why did the uprising happen in the first place? So I think for the last, I would say, three years, um, Sudan's economy has just completely spiralled and gone to shit. And it's not even, you know, Sudan was never a wealthy country. It was barely a you know, middle economy country mm. in Africa. But after the secession with South Sudan, um, the North lost 70% of its oil reserves. And the government hadn't prepared for that. They hadn't, you know, created a diverse portfolio of investment mm. or focus on agriculture all of our economy was built on oil so when the south when south sudan became independent the north just started to crumble and it's actually ironic that the very sort of racist islamist arabist rule that bashir built his presidency on uh, was the very thing that destroyed him in the end and Bashir was essentially a dictator at that time, right? Bashir has been, was Sudan's president for the last 30 years. So since 1989, he came into power through a military coup. So he was president until April 11th. Um, but before that, so the economy goes to shit and the corruption of the regime starts to become more bold, more brazen, more in people's faces. And subsidies keep getting lifted by the government. So in 2016, um, a set of subsidies were lifted and then you know, fuel and bread and medicine became really expensive for people. And so peri periodically subsidies would get lifted and people would protest, but they'd get quelled very quickly and easily. And people would, I mean, there have been bouts of unrest since 2009 and they would die down really quickly. But this was sort of the first big challenge to Bashir's power where it was like cut across class, it cut across gender, it cut across ethnic divides. So... I was in Sudan over Christmas holiday. I sort of knew that I needed to report on what was going on just in terms of the economy just being, it, it wasn't even just the economy. There was just, I would go back home to Sudan and I would feel a suffocation mm. in the air. Like people just walking down the street with their heads hanging, just not even like barely being able to breathe, um, let alone survive economically. Um, so I go back and I remember the first sort of like the second week of December, maybe like the 12th, I main road near my house. My dad was like, they've been burning tires on the main road, quickly dispersed, didn't really think much of it because I was like, this always happens and it's always just crushed. Then we hear of sort of regional protests. So on the 19th of December, we all, everyone on WhatsApp gets this video, not only of protests in Adbara, this, this town north of Khartoum, but literally burning the ruling party's headquarters there. So it was like really theatrical and like, it was a really 
crazy image to see such a challenge to the ruling party's power. How, how did that happen though? How did it go from like, like you said, kind of, you know, things start up and it gets quelled quick, quite easily and then all of a sudden this kind of explodes at this time? It was, it was just a level of desperation. People just, honestly, they stopped caring about the crackdown. They stopped caring about what, what the consequences were because they couldn't survive either way. So, you know, I was in London and everyone, everyone in the diaspora was seeing these videos of like long lines for bread, long lines for fuel. Um, electricity was just disconnecting all the time. It was like an infrastructural collapse. So it was like, not only do they hate this president who's been just forced on them for 30 years, he's lost all popular appeal. And at the same time, they're like, how the hell do we feed our kids? Like, this is just too much. Mm. So it was, it, was a, it was a climb. I mean, I remember my brother telling me like, it's do or die for this government right now. Like, then they can't survive this climate. There's no way they can come back from this. So it was a, it was a, it literally was a, I would say like a gradual descent into chaos. And then suddenly it was just like, done. Everyone got on board. Everyone yeah. was just like, oh, we're doing this. <laughs> All right, we're doing this. Because mm. they saw this image and it was like, wow, they actually burnt down the building. So it really showed people what was possible in terms of challenging um, the government. But also it made people in the capital feel a bit stupid. Because it's like these guys in the in the provinces in the, in the you know in this little provincial town are burning down buildings and we're just sitting in our houses. Fuck that, we're going in. So the week of December twentieth, things kick off and the protests start in a really big way. I mean, everyone thought you know what they're gonna die down soon. But what happened was, and this was the fault of the government, and I think it was a really stupid move. They cracked down hard. They went in quick and hard and killed 37 people, at least 37 people, according to Amnesty International, in the first five days. So you're just seeing like all these videos and, and stories of people dying, not just in Khartoum, but across the country. And that made people want to go out even more. And they were completely peaceful protests, right? It was yeah, no one with arms or anything. No arms. And that was the whole point of like, we're going to do this peacefully and we're going to challenge military rule peacefully. So. Yeah, so they go out, and then what hap starts happening is that this coalition of workers' unions, professionals' unions, sorry, this coalition of professional unions starts using social media to organize people, all anonymous. No one knows who these professionals are, but they plan this huge march on the 25th of December on Christmas Day. Um, funnily enough, doesn't get much coverage because it's Christmas Day and, and no one's in Yeah, the bad office. timing. So they plan this huge march, and in that march, people really got you know beaten shot at arrested just in in swathes like they were just picking up people by the truckload was it the police at that time doing that or the military so it was a combination of um national security forces uh police and also these militias like looking back at the footage they were we called them death squads we couldn't place them we didn't know who they were it was just people in like weird uniforms sometimes plain clothed just shooting at people there's this famous notorious video of this guy with like a gun being like I'm gonna kill anyone who comes like just going out for mm. you know modern warfare in this in the streets of the capital so 25th of December happens people are shot by snipers um, I've initially found that difficult to to hop on board with and just be like snipers are shooting at people until I actually did an investigation on a man who was shot in the back and the bullet is literally facing downwards so it's like there's no way. Yeah, he's been shot from a roof. He's been shot yeah. from a roof, not even from a truck, because it literally was like, the, the, the angle was completely 
obvious yeah. that it, it had to be from a vantage point. And the doctor even was like, the way it's penetrated as well was from a sniper. So they literally pulled out the big guns in every way possible. So 25th of December happens and people are just, the days after, they're reeling from this um, crackdown because they, they realized it was almost like, oh, we, we must be powerful if they want to crush this so badly. And you have to remember that people in the capital are so, oh, I wouldn't say disillusioned, but they don't, they never believed that Darfur really happened. They never believed that South Kurdufan, like the, the people in South Kurdufan were also ethnically cleansed. They never related with the people in the far-flung hinterlands of Sudan who'd been seeing this side of the government for so long. It was this middle-class elite blindness. So they never understood that this could actually happen to them. So they got like woken up. Yeah, it did. It shook them. And then they're like, oh, now they really have to go because this is crazy. And I remember seeing tweets of people being like, I never believed that Darfur happened until our protest started. So that's December. The week, the last week of December, the government rounds up these Darfur students who um, are actually a part of the political party that follows rebel leader Abdel Wahid. Um, but they're students, they're organizing, they're not armed. They, they round them up and they sort of parade them around um, Sydney's television photos of them saying that they were Israeli trained, an Israeli trained terror cell right. that was planted to wreak havoc in the capital and to sort of um, create divisions amongst the people. So they till, till the end of December they refused to admit that this was a grassroots uprising against the government. They started trying to, they kept blaming like foreign powers, Bashir would come out and be like, these are infiltrators, these are foreign powers. Like Detail 101 that, isn't it? Exactly. So this is the last week of December. I land, I literally left for three days, come back and the, the country's on fire. Land on the 27th. The 31st is a big march and I'm freelancing. And at that point I am producing on the ground for CNN International and I'm doing a package with my sister who's in London. Uh, so we go out into the streets of Khartoum and for me, I was just, I had already, when I was away for three days, I was using social media to just cover it. Um, verifying things, posting them, um, cross-checking things, images, videos of protests, um, because obviously it was the week of Christmas and there was really no coverage. Mm. So I go out on the streets and I'm covering for CNN, tweet like I'm gonna be on the ground in English. Uh, we go out to the downtown Khartoum Really interesting, actually, I should mention, we see a big truck, like not even a big truck, like I can't explain how big this truck was. And all these like Eastern European men come out with these little cameras and they're like- Seen, yeah, 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 yeah. I saw this footage. They yeah. reckon they were like Russian mercenaries like, or something. No, they reckon that there's like a Russian private security company right. like surveying the area. But interestingly, when things kicked off with the protests, they went in the other direction. Hmm. So I don't know if they didn't want to be seen around the protesters or sort of framed or, you know, for anyone to say that they were cracking down or anything. Mm. Uh, so we go out and we're sitting with this tea lady waiting for things to kick off. And then this man. So we start noticing that everyone who's on the ground who has a headphone in their ear, like a headphone piece in their ear is basically and with their phone open is they're all getting the same orders. So like secret police or something? Yeah, like informants. Informants, security, you know, plainclothes security officers. So we sit down with this tea lady and um, 
this dude is just staring at me and my cameraman and we're just like, what the hell's wrong with this guy? So we're like, forget that. We're going to go get in the car. Uh, we'll get in the car and we'll patrol the area. Then we'll park and then try Because it's really hard to figure out when the protest is going to start happening. So you just try and patrol. But once you're caught in it, they don't differentiate between... If you're just even on the sidelines, you'll you'll be done. Mm-hmm. So we were like, okay, better to keep moving and try and follow it and then see if we can catch it on the other end. Um, so we get in the car and I've got my phone, which I'm filming on. We're, we were like, we're going to do it all phones. And we're in the car on one of the main roads in downtown Khartoum. And we just met some protesters who got tear gas, spoke to them through the car window. We go towards the protest. And then there's a convoy of national security trucks moving towards where the protest is. And I'm filming the convoy on my truck. I'm on my truck, no, filming the trucks on my phone. And then I remember the cameraman being like, Yusra, Yusra, it's like enough. Mm. I'm like, no, no, one, one more shot, like one more. Um, because we then we can actually go to the place and say they were all driving towards this place. And then this guy catches me and runs over to the car and tells them she's filming, she's filming. And just, I would say like a few minutes before we saw them rip this guy's shirt apart because they basically like beat him as he just lifted his phone. Um, so they just didn't want anyone watching that day. So we go, um, so yeah, so they run towards the car and he is trying to get in the car and he literally tries to kick the window into my face with his boots. And at that point, my cameraman was like, open the door, Yusra. So I, when he was already running towards, I put my phone that I was filming on in my bag and put the other phone that I use for Sudan on top of it. Swap it, yeah. And so he comes, they bang the doors. They, we, I open the door, he immediately grabs me by my shirt and starts shaking me violently. And he's like, you, you're filming, you're filming. And I was like, I'm not filming. I swear I wasn't filming. I was like, oh man, I'm lying. Like, to do my... T- I'm not filming. And my cameraman at the, at the same time as driving is getting like slapped and like mm. beaten and all this stuff. So when he, I see that my cameraman's being like quite badly beaten, I was like, I'm not filming. And he was like, bring me your phone, bring me your phone. And I was like, take my phone, give him the other phone. Mm. And then thankfully things, they get the orders that things have kicked off. So they just dropped me. You. Yeah. You're lucky, man. Dropped my <laughs> And at this point, they just think I'm a civilian. They don't know anything. We don't have any real big cameras. I had a little handy cam that we shoved under the seat. But at that point, they didn't look through my bag. Um, But yeah, so they dropped me. And I looked down, my shirt's been like ripped down the front. Um, My cameraman is like rubbing his neck. um, And they run off. And at that moment, all I could think about was like, I caught them. Mm. Like, I personally have caught them without getting arrested without being searched without them taking my stuff they've just shown what they'll do to just someone in their car who's trying to film their trucks well, they even know you were a journalist right? no they don't yeah. know yeah they didn't know i was a journalist but like this is how badly they don't want the world yeah. to see what they're doing is that i'm not even on the street and they're just like you know flinging me around like a ragdoll so we tell cnn we're like I was like, um, they caught us filming and they've taken my other phone. I've got my phone with the footage and I'm like, we're going to go down and see what what, what the protests are saying. And you didn't think then, like, go home? No, no, no. I was like, <laughs> all right, let's keep going. Yeah, yeah. I've got, I've still got my cameras. Um, and obviously CNN are like, pull out, pull out. Like, 
you're done. And we had a, a friend's house that we had designated as a safe house that was nearby. Um, and then CNN asked me to film a piece to camera about the, them ripping my shirt. And then I immediately was like, I honestly, I was like, I'm gonna expose them. And it wasn't even like I was angry. It was because I knew that at that moment, yeah, it, there was a news element to what they did to me. And it was like, I don't want to make this about myself, but if this is what they're doing to me, it's what, they'll do to anyone, what, what right? are they yeah. doing to the people who are protesting? Sure. If I'm just in a car and I'm just taking a video. So I tweet that what happened and I tweet it like, this is what happened. Um, and the tweet gets a lot of retweets and it's translated into Arabic and it sort of goes like viral in a very like local domestic sense. Um, and then they call my mom because they they realize my phone's in English and they're like, shit, who's this person? Yeah. They call my mom and I think they realized who, that I was a journalist. So they were going through your phone that you gave them? Yeah, right. they went through the phone. They called my mom. My mom, bless her, called me. She's like, yes, and where are you? <laughs> she, and she she was just like, they called me. And she was like, they literally were like, we found her phone. And I was like, who are you? Your police, your police. Yeah. I immediately knew because my dad is a journalist and a politician and he was arrested by the former regime and was in prison, political prison for a year. And he was kidnapped from Egypt and smuggled across the border to Sudan. And my mum's a publisher as well. So she's like, they they honestly thought they were calling some like dim woman mm. who literally doesn't know anything. And she was like, you think I'm dumb? I know you've got my daughter. And um, so then they basically were like, no. And then the guy just flipped his story. He went from saying, I found her phone to saying, she she was trying to film you know film the 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 army and then i told them not to arrest her all these lies and then ended up telling my dad when he picked up the phone that i tried to hit them right which is okay. i literally when they grabbed my shirt my hands were up immediately hostile environment training mm. like he's got a gun i don't you know they try and punch up the yeah yeah the guy no, with I'm the, good. With the I'm rifle, yeah um so anyway so we put that we got that piece out that night and it was really interesting because it was like, suddenly people are like, oh crap, okay, something's really going on. Journalists are getting like flung around and, and loads of journalists got arrested that day. And I'm honestly told this day, do not understand how I did not get arrested. Mm. I really feel like it was the crystal in my bag or something. I was like, how did I get protected from this? Um, so that was the 31st. So what that event did for me personally is it did buy me immunity for some time because they realized, okay, we can't really mess with her unless we want it to be a big thing. Or yeah, like, gonna create she's going to go effect, tweet, right? like, yeah, yeah she's yeah. a little snitch. She's going to go on Twitter <laughs> yeah, and tell everyone yeah. that we, we messed with her. So that bought me time to basically work on investigations. And I made sort of an active choice from then on to not try and do on-the-ground protest coverage because all every journalist, and even when I spoke to the foreign news guys, when I tried to sort of go legit and get my permits and stuff before I had to eventually leave, said to me, it doesn't matter who you are, if you're on a protest site, you will get arrested. But with this pass, this permit, you'll get released quite quickly. Right. So I made a decision. I'm not going to go to any protest sites. I'm going to just get the videos and use the Reuters agency coverage and focus on investigating all the systemic methods that they use to sort of crush people mm. so we're talking like night arrests we're talking sexual harassment of women um 
Oh, what else did we do? There was one, you know, there was one piece that we did where we literally realized that they were just arresting all of the intelligentsia of Khartoum, all the academics, all the professionals, all the people that they felt could be potential leaders in a new Sudan. Right. Um, there were other methods that they used, um, you know, other than shooting people point blank in mm. the chest and in the head and stuff. So it was, it was really interesting to be able to see it in a systemic way rather than what I would have done in a personal way, which is be like, oh, how terrible. But actually, as a journalist covering it in terms of like, it's warfare. It's mm. actually methods to crush people and to set an example as well so that other people don't think it's worth the risk. So um, Dar Darius Bazargan and I spent, so I say, so uh, yeah, so I left on the 26th of January. So we had like a solid, just over three weeks where I was on the ground, Darius was in the Channel 4 News office in London, and we would sort of work together, he'd be like, okay, this is what we should get, and this is, he really had an amazing way of like thinking of themes, and sort of detaching himself from it, and being like, okay, this is a tactic that they use, and this is another tactic, but one of the craziest things we realized early on was that they were targeting doctors, and it was a very sort of Syrian strategy mm, it's like Assad's kind of thing yeah Assad's thing and surprisingly just as protests were kicking off Bashir went to see Assad and Syria. oh really yeah they mm. had a little brainstorming session um so targeting doctors arresting doctors um attacking doctors attacking hospitals um so firstly we the first couple of reports we did we spoke to doctors who confirm that it was a shoot to kill policy that they were using so it wasn't just oh we're firing live ammunition to the air and a stray bullet and hit someone it's no hit in the head hit in the chest right. um not just the limbs or it was literally we were planning to kill these people it's firing directly at the people firing directly uh -huh. at people and then second thing they did was make hospitals unsafe spaces so one piece that we did that i will never forget was this attack on this hospital in Darius again did an amazing job of collecting all the UGC, all the mobile phone footage from inside the hospital. And then I found the doctor who was leading the team that day, the medical team inside that hospital, who was, I honestly begged him to not show his face. I was like, do you really want to show your face? He's like, yeah, I, honestly, at this point, they've shot up my hospital. Like, I don't. So they're I literally know. shooting up the hospital. Yeah. So they walked. So he told me that they stepped in. You don't see them shooting in the video. All you see is like the chaos afterwards and you see the moment where they enter the hospital grounds, but everyone was too scared to film in the moment where they walked in. They shoot up the the emergency ward and they actually shot three injured protesters who were getting treatment on the table and they tear gassed the emergency ward. So this people. is the military at this point? No, this is all security forces. Okay, okay. The military weren't really, we, we didn't see them. They were just guarding banks, petrol stations. Sure. They were treating them like just any any guys like just a security sort of for for petrol stations and banks so yes yeah, so the security forces go in they shoot three in, three injured protesters they tear gas the place so in one of the videos it's literally them opening an oxygen 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 tank in the emergency ward so that they could get rid of this those tear gas because there were people who went into respire respiratory like shock because mm. they couldn't breathe um so that was that was shocking and that was a moment where we were like okay um this is insane and they're really trying to just get rid of this by any means and um one thing one of the doctors said that i interviewed was 
their whole strategy is to cripple the doctors because if they cripple the doctors who are the first line of defense when protesters get injured mm. by them then they'll cripple the protests um so it was pretty clear that there was a strategy in that so dark it is it is dark because really and truly even in war zones hospitals are meant to be sort of a neutral zone no one goes into a hospital mm. but that i mean we saw that with the syrian regime that really went out the window then and and to think that he was using those tactics um was was insane so yeah hospitals and then we did we did hospitals so then so then we start investigating these night arrests of intelligentsia and of sort of academics and all these people that we noticed starting to get just in the middle of the night disappearing um and one of the men had become it was it was a big case in the sense of everyone was just shocked in Sudan about how this man was arrested so on the 25th of December on the Christmas day march this man was shot by a sniper told you about um then he's waiting to go to the UAE where he lives with his wife to get treatment because the doctors in Sudan were like we can't remove the bullet you need a second opinion it's too unstable it's literally like lodged between his lung and his spine right yeah and he basically the day before he's meant to fly out to the UAE he's in bed with his wife we're like no it was in the morning he's he's in his own bed cuz he's injured and she's standing over him about to give him medicine in the morning and regime forces said they were masked storm into the house and everyone's shocked and the grandma's like who are these guys are they guests she was just so shocked and they literally are like he's coming with us they point to him at the bed and they're like he's coming with us and they arrest him uh with the bullet in his chest and everyone is just like whoa like this is insane so i had heard about this and i got in touch with his wife who agreed to speak to us exclusively because before that she had been really concerned that if she speaks to anyone that they'll take the bullet out or they'll just kill him so we speak to her and we find out that they've been trying to force him into a like an operation in the security run hospital to get their bullet back because the bullet is evidence and he refuses to sign the consent form he's like there's no way I'm letting you guys wow. touch me with yeah. any sort of like medical tool so he refuses to get his bullet back and i meet her and we do the interview and we release the piece and i'm there for a bit longer and i'm working on this piece about women on the front line getting attacked but sort of leading the protests and facing all these this like gendered violence getting their hair braids cut off like all these really strange and very spe- like specific ways of of sort of crushing their spirit complete humiliation yeah or, complete yeah. humiliation i mean it, and obviously there was rape there was mm. beatings you know verbal abuse but just it was there was something about that the, that photo of the hair braids on the floor that really was just shocking um to everyone because it just felt like a sport at that point mm. um, felt like scalping you know what i mean exactly yeah. so i'm working on that and then i so by that point i know they're looking for me um and they don't want to come to my house and make a scene cuz like I said I sort of bought myself immunity where I was like if you you better kill me cuz otherwise I'm going to tell everyone mm. what you're doing. Um so they they're looking for me, they're trying to find out who's filming for me, like literally asking every cameraman, are you filming for her? Are you filming for her? 
still sort of uh, being around the bush and not actually calling me. So I get a message from a fellow journalist who's on the ground and she says that the head of the foreign news department, the, the intelligence head of the foreign news department is looking for me and wants my number. And I was like, sure thing, give him my dad's number, let's see what he has to say. Um, just going off the fact that I know that Sudanese men you know, need to speak to another man mm. to really feel like yeah. some sense of yeah. responsibility for their for their actions. So he calls my dad and he puts on this big show and it's like, oh my God, she's your daughter. Because my dad's opposition politician. Mm. Um, she's your daughter? Okay, now we'll definitely take care of her. And she, <laughs> <laughs> So I was like, okay, what's this guy got to say? So we invite him to that. He said, let her come see me. And we were like, you come to the house if you want to, if you want to talk. He comes over um, and we meet and I sort of very polite and he was like, you know, people talk about us like and at this point I meet him. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming he's watched everything that I've put out. Mm. I mean, the last report with with Yasser Ali, who was shot in the back, was a week before. So I assumed, OK, this dude knows and he's happy to, to communicate. So I'm going to be open as well and mm. I'm going to try and get my permits, go to jet, and do some government interviews, really balance out yeah, this yeah. coverage. Um, so he, he sits down with me and he basically says, you know, they, they act like we're this big haunted house and, you know, we're not affiliated to any administration. Like, our institution goes beyond this regime. Or mm. he doesn't say regime, obviously. He says this government um, and this president and we, you know, we are part of the last administration. And, you know people just honestly are shocked because like some of the girls that come to and he doesn't say arrested but he says some of the girls that are come that have what did he say some of the girls that leave us are so shocked by the treatment they just honestly they said they haven't eaten food like that before oh my God, right. and i and at that point i look him in the eye and i said um yo stas sir or just a polite way to speak to someone who's older than you or senior um, I was like, you're not going to convince me that there's no violence, especially towards women, because I myself, as mild as it was, experienced violence. But that's not what we're here to talk about. I'm happy to get my permits. I'm happy to apply for them. Um, so let's do it. So what do I need to do? What do I need to submit? I'm ready. Let's balance this out. And I'll, and I'll sub submit letters to certain politicians that I want to speak to. And he said, he was really surprised. I think he thought he'd have to convince me. Mm. Um, but I think my point was, there is a reason why I haven't come and applied for my permits. Because the first day that I was covering on the ground, I was, I had a very horrible experience. So why would I come and voluntarily apply for permits? Um, so then he sort of, and I'm like, okay, so how long will they take? And he's like, he literally looks me dead in the eye and smirks. And he's like, two months. <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> and okay. I don't, I don't break eye contact, and I'm like, and then he's like, oh, but we'll speed it up for you. And I know it takes, it can be issued on the day. Yeah, of course. Or he's trying to play games, let's say. And then I'm ready, and I've got my papers together, and Channel Four News sends the letter, and we're we're ready to go. And then I go to their offices, and and I've set up all my interviews for like the women on the front line piece. I go to their office and I speak to someone who's just just under him, really nice guy, security apparatus, but very nice, straightforward person. And I'm ready. And then he sort of looks at his phone and he's, his, his eyebrows are furrowed and he's like, did you put out a piece a couple of days ago? The guy in the office. And I said, oh, that was last week. I haven't done anything since we started talking because I want to get my permits out. 
and he's like, oh, I, I saw I saw some a piece that you did. It's, it was a bit intense. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, that was last week, man. Mm. This is a new, like, are we talking about the past? Let's move it forward. Um, and then he's like, okay, cool. Your permits will be out in a couple of days. Come pick it up on this, at the start of the week. It's, everything was good. I still, I have to say, I had a nagging suspicion that it wasn't going to be that easy. But I just really wanted to to just be open to the fact that we could actually just... Well, at least try, right? At least yeah. try. So the next day I get a call. It was a Friday. And it's the that foreign news head that was at my house. He's freaking out. He's freaking out. He's like, I just saw the piece that you did. It was so bad. How could you do this? You know, I was like... He was like, they want to bring you in and ask you questions about it. I was like, well, they can bring me in and ask me questions about it. I've got evidence for everything that I said. No, 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 you can't. Like, what you did was bad. It was bad. Like, he was honestly... I felt like I had to comfort him. Like, he was just so <laughs> stressed. Yeah. He was really and truly upset. And then he says to me, he was like, you didn't even get a government voice. And I said, well, it's an investigation. And you... And this is about Yasser Ali. I said, you put him on a no-fly list. And if I had told you what that I had interviewed his wife or that we were working on this, you would have put her on a no-fly list mm. as well. I have to protect my sources. Mm. Um, and then he says, well, she's not flying anywhere because she's going to be a witness against you in court because we're going to file the charge of inciting hatred against the state against you. That's a big charge. It's, it's like a treasonous yeah. charge. It's uh. like I have my friend's dad who's an activist politician who got four months, and he was a British citizen, got four months until they could get him out this was pre-trial. Wow, okay. Um, so it's like you would be locked out. Lock, it's, it's a death sentence or it's life. So it wasn't, it wasn't yeah. like petty crime. So I was like, okay. At that point, I still... And my whole thing was the crackdown on journalists had been getting worse and worse and worse as, it, weirdly enough, the crackdown on the protesters was getting less bad than it was in the first days. Right. But... They didn't want anyone covering it. And a lot of friends I knew who are foreign journalists had their permits stripped. So it was weird that they approached me mm. and told me to get my permits. So I sort of knew the jig was going to be up Playing soon. a game. Kind of. Yeah, I yeah. knew it. But I knew, I, I just wanted to sort of see what happened. So then I, I asked him point blank. I'm like, are you going to give me my permits? He said, no, not for now. Mm. I was like, so should I tell them that I can't work on the ground? Because they will, and I tried to sort of mildly threaten him, they'll have to release a statement about mm. how their correspondent can't work. And he was like, let them release a statement tomorrow. He's like, we've taken, we've stripped seven foreign journalists of permits and your work was worse than all of them combined. So I was like, right, okay, um, I'm going to give you my dad and just start <laughs> packing my yeah, suitcase. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Channel 4 News flew me out that evening and I found out from an in-law who is close to the security services who said that they literally put me on the no-fly list a couple of hours after I left and realised that I'm not a British citizen. So they, been, they they had this illusion that I was a Brit, so they didn't really um, come full force. And then they were like, oh, she's Sudanese. Oh, well, rest her and I was already gone. Yeah. <laughs> so it was all, like, it really was just a matter of timing throughout. So I leave, I come back to London, and the piece about the women on the front line sort of ends with, because all the interviews were anonymous, because all the women were terrified at that point, as, as well as the men. Um, but the whole point was, it was, they're anonymous because 
if you show your face, this is what happens. Mm. You have to leave the country yeah. if you have the privilege of leaving the country, uh, which most people don't. Um, so I left and I was sort of doing stuff from London remotely, which wasn't the same. And it was honestly, it was really difficult to not know when I would be able to go back and how I would go back. But the protests continued and the strikes started to be more like strikes on a professional sort of worker level, like people started striking. There was, I have to say, it wasn't, at some point I, I didn't know how it would end or what would happen. And I didn't know if it would succeed, but it just continued to happen and we would keep checking in and cover it. And then this, so, end of March they start planning this millions march and it was meant to be and I think people had noticed that it had started to plateau and things weren't really happening in terms of like on a mass scale it was just like sporadic protests here and there worker strikes people were holding up signs but that impact had gone and also uh, Algeria had started to to have its own uprising and they looked like they were packed like yeah. it was so many people and I think people realized that visually it looks more powerful when it's a lot of people yeah, rather than yeah. it being split so it, like up. lost momentum at that point it, I, I wouldn't say it lost momentum it just plateaued sure. so it sort of it didn't wasn't going you couldn't see where it was going so um so they planned this millions march and it was and obviously throughout all of this there are talks of like a coup internal coup there was one day at the end of april at the end of feb where Bashid was meant to give this speech and the head of this, the spy chief, the former spy chief, leaked to the media, leaked to a group of journalists that Bashir was going to step down as the ruling party head mm. and was going to sort of give a deadline to his rule and say, we're not going to extend my presidency within the constitution. And, and then Bashir is like two hours late for the speech, then goes on stage and does not say any of that. And everyone's like, what? <laughs> like everyone was expecting this huge political shift that didn't happen. And that's when things started to pick up again. Because the level of disappointment then was like, okay, this dude really pl is not planning to go anywhere. Um, he declared the state of emergency that was leaked, but that was pretty much it. Mm. And the state of emergency basically gave him the constitutional power to do more than he had done before. So it gave... Uh, security forces and the army uh, and the police the right to search people to detain people so arbitrary arrests became legal the curfews and stuff curfew, right. yeah. yeah that no one no one listened to the curfew yeah but so he really people I, I I looking back I think if he had sort of made those concessions maybe he could have survived for a bit longer but the level of disappointment that people felt after that was like undeniable so he he makes a speech then yeah so towards mid-march end of march people start planning so like less than a month later there's this plan for this millions march and i'm here in london and we're like oh yeah so we should cover the millions march and i have to admit i thought it would be good and strong and it would be like a revival but i didn't think it would be as big and as moment momentous as it was so first day i i have this like annoying test to do and so I'm sort of working from home coming in later to do the piece in the newsroom and I'm sending um, videos to Michael French my producer on the day 
and because I know all the Twitter accounts with the good mobile phone videos. And so I send him the videos and then I'm like, wait. And as I'm sending them, I'm like, Michael, they made it to the army HQ. They actually made it. And I'm like, whoa. And I'm sending them more. And I'm like, oh my God, do you see what's going on? So they had marched to the army HQ, but no one, I have to say, no one thought they would make it to the HQ. Well, they thought they'd be dispersed beforehand. Yeah. yeah. They thought they'd be tear gas, yeah. shot out. But at that point, I have to say, people were getting desensitized to everything. You, you know, you would see photos of people holding tear gas cans and throwing them throwing back. Them back. Yeah, yeah. And there was this one girl called the tear gas killer who <laughs> literally would like she's known to like just throw like there's so many photos of her in her like hijab throwing the tear gas throwing them back, yeah. um no one expected them to make it and when you f when we first saw the like first sprinkles of people in front of the military hq we were kind of like okay and then it got bigger and bigger and bigger and by the evening it was this mass throbbing crowd in front of the military headquarters mm. and they were like everyone was just in shock and then Everyone was like, well, yeah, we're not going anywhere. You guys join. So everyone stayed the night. Um, and then the next day, and first, uh, you know, the first thing Michael and I noticed was, why aren't the army doing anything? Mm. They didn't do anything. The next day, and that night, there were shootings. And they tried to disperse the sit-in. The military shot or the no, security, security forces? Security forces. Right. Um, wait, was it on the first night? No, it wasn't the first night, sorry. That was the second night. Okay. So yeah, so they, so they sleep over. And then the next day, Michael and I noticed that not only are the army letting them sort of gather in front of the HQ, but they're like handing out water and stuff and like, like chanting with them. And it just started to look really like a coup. Mm. Like no one watching it or looking at it could have been like, oh no, that's not, like we were like, I think that's a coup. Um, so we started to notice the army were getting really friendly with the crowds. Um, and then that night, security forces on the second day tried to break it up and the army were firing back. Right, I saw this footage that had like a gunfight, right? There was a proper gunfight and people were still live streaming and it was like, it was this amazing like citizen journalism of like narrating like, we're in the middle of the gunfight. <laughs> and it's like these really dodgy Facebook lives, like the quality yeah. is so bad. And then <clears throat> the next day, the third day of the sit-in, it wasn't just we're giving out water. It was literally, is that camera on? We are the army and we stand by the people and we are here to stay and we want the end of the regime. Then we're like, okay, it's a coup. Right, it's yeah. done. So this keeps going and the, the gunfire at night keeps happening. Um, and the night time becomes like this really, and even till the very end of the sit-in was like this really known to be quite a dangerous time to be there because that is when they come in and they try and disperse the area. So, so that was 8th, 9th, 10th. It's just increasingly getting bigger and fuller. And there was some, like at one point it looked huge. I mean, I, I don't know if it ever was at the millions mm. that people said, but it was... I, I could say it could have been close to a million. Hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands, yeah. definitely. Um, but definitely, like, at least a million had passed through sure. over those days. Um, and people were coming in from the suburbs and joining. It was really, like, I think everyone in the diaspora was just shocked. And so just before the 11th, it had become, like, the shanty town. Like, there were, like, extension cables... There was like, you know, if you want to charge your phone, there was like a clinic, 
It, it looked was, like Occupy, you know, I it saw was some footage, occupied. yeah. It was yeah. like the freelance. Um, there was like, I saw like a little miming, mobile miming crew, right. an acrobatic crew, all these musicians, like saxophone players, like it became like this hub of resistance, culture, art, and it was also like so self-reliant as well. Um, people cooking, people giving out free water, food, um, and everyone in the diaspora that I, you know, saw on Twitter and Instagram and social media was just like, we want to be there so badly. Yeah. Like this is history in the making. Then on the morning of the 11th, <clears throat> actually at the night, the night of the 12th, um, there is an announcement by the army. The army have taken over the airwaves. So it was like 3 a.m. Army have taken over the airwaves. Um, we're gonna make an announcement soon. Everyone tunes into this like radio station. And all you hear is like, burp, 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 like for so long, mm. just like over and over and over and over. And, and it literally takes so long for this announcement to be made until it's like the day of the 11th. And then some provincial minister in some far flung state preempts it and says, Ahmed Bashir has stepped down. And basically, there's a meeting um, to form a transitional council. Which is what exactly? So it was literally a meeting between, and so this was. I had already confirmed, I'd received information that the meeting was between the former spy chief, um, Hamidti, Mohammed Hamdan, Junjaweed leader, um, and who was it? Abdel Fattah Burhan, who is now the chair. And it was also, um, it's a few people, Ibn Rauf, who took over after Bashir briefly. So they were all meeting to discuss how they were going to transition to so exchange of power from exchange of power but to... also i mean the fact that the former spy chief was there says a lot and mm. it does confirm a lot of theories that have come out since then that he engineered the whole thing really to take power he engineered the whole thing for the survival of the regime for the survival of the deep state that he helped mm -hmm. create so he was in the room and then um so yeah and then bashir steps down and where did he go sorry where? Like Bashir, after he stepped down, did he stay after in the country? He after or? he stepped down, he was in the country. And he is basically, um, there were different rumours. Someone said he was at his farm. Someone said he was at, you know, at his house. And then the week after, we hear that he's been transferred to prison. And so I, you know, we confirmed that he was in prison um, from people that worked at the, the prison, but also from family members of his. But it, it, he wasn't transferred right away. It took mm -hmm. a few days. But so they're all meeting in this room. Um, and then there's this announcement by this guy, um, Awad ibn Rauf, who was the VP at the time. Because what Bashir did when he was meant to announce that he was stepping down as the ruling party head, he actually called the state of emergency, but he also dissolved his cabinet and made all his um, ministers, all his ministers were army generals, basically. So this guy that was in the room was his VP at the time. Right. Okay. So this VP comes on the airwaves and says, Bashida stepped down. We've we've called uh, a state of emergency. There's a curfew. And I'm going to be your interim ruler, basically. So it sounds, sorry to cut you in, but it sounds like he's not, he's been like, right, I'll step down so we can all still have the cake. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, I think if that was what he said, then what did he gain? not being extradited because right. he's still in Sudan for what we know we, we don't know if he's still there but he's in Sudan so he hasn't had to face the ICC 
He hasn't had to face, you know, the international community who've been condemning him since 2009. So what, whatever was agreed is clearly beneficial for, for him right now. Um, and the involvement of people in the Transitional Military Council that were, you know, working with him and alongside him is quite an indication of the fact that this could very well be an extension of his rule rather than an, an end to his rule. Sure. So, yeah, so he leaves, everyone's celebrating on the streets in the sit-in, and then this guy comes along who they're, they're like, literally, I, I left London on the 12th of April to get to Khartoum to try and get in and cover his resignation. Between the time I got on the plane from London on the 12th, to the time I, by the time I got to Khartoum, this guy had already resigned. So they had managed to get rid of one president after 30 years and another one after 30 hours. That's because the people carried on protesting, right? They didn't people want were it. like, who yeah. the hell is yeah, this yeah. guy? We don't want the VP of, of the president that we just got rid of. And they were literally like chanting. They, they came up with chants so quickly, anti-Ibn Arof chants of being like, we don't want him. Mm. So he... In, on my transit in Cairo, this man stepped down. So it was literally, it was so quick. It was the next day he was gone. Um, then we find out Abdel Fattah Burhan, former inspector general, is now the interim head of the state, head of state. And the vice chair is Mohammed Hamdan Hamidti, Mohammed Hamdan Daglo, also known as Hamidti, former Janjaweed leader, now leader of the paramilitary group RSF, who are a mix of Janjaweed and officers. Gingerweed was this militia, right? Gingerweed translates into devils on horseback. <laughs> oh, okay. Like, literally, tra translates into devils on horseback in, in sort of the, the local dialect in Darfur. And that's what they called the militias that attacked the villages and raised them to the ground. Right. So this guy was apparently our VP now, our interim VP. And I have to say, I thought people would be up in arms. Mm, you would imagine. But they weren't. Because what Hamidti told the people was that Bashir in his last in his final hours wanted to enact martial law and execute or have Himiti execute a third of the population to protect him and Himiti said that he refused so Himiti framed himself literally the as the man who saved the revolution right so he's trying to be this hero this revolutionary right so and and to be honest, the majority of the population bought it, mm. and so, so we have this new guy Abdel Fattah Burhan and Hamidi. These are the new leaders of Sudan. What do they have in common? What they have in common is that they both worked together to get Sudanese troops to Yemen to fight for the Saudi-led co coalition. Mm -hmm. So, and and I had also received information from sources that Saudi was very much involved in the coup very much involved in engineering the coup. And in the early days, after, you know, after Bashir, uh, you know, the early days of a Bashir-free Sudan, there was a very high-profile delegation of Saudi and UAE officials in Khartoum. So we get to Sudan, and it, you know, I'm 27, Bashir's been in power since 1989, and it's the first time that I see a Sudan that isn't being run by Bashir. And what we, was it like? Must have been celebratory, you know? So, yeah, so we're on the flight from Addis because the Egyptian air stopped flying in once uh, Narav stepped down. Um, 
and so we're on the flight from Addis, uh, Addis Ababa, so the Ethiopian Airlines flight. Everyone is going crazy on this plane. They're chanting, they're like ululating, they're like singing. Everyone's so excited. And it literally, like, the videos of them getting off the plane, grandmas, like, everyone was just celebrating. And so we, and it was weird. Like, honestly, I just, I was a bit anxious. Like, I was just like, I wasn't scared about not being let in. I was more just like, I don't know what to expect. Like, mm. it's just, it's just weird. And it is, I don't know, like, when you feel like history is happening, you have this weird awareness of it, but you're also very eer eerily present in it as well. So we land, I don't have any problem getting in. And we, you know, shower change, we go straight to the sit-in site. And it is honestly, I have never seen, like, even carnival doesn't match up to this. <laughs> like, it was just electric yeah. like people were just euphoric you know we walk in and we see this crowd and they've got these two guys on their shoulders and the guys are like wearing like scarves and acting like women and so Bashir's wife was called Widad and Ibn Auf's wife was called Amani and they were like singing like Widadu Amani Sagatatani so it was like Widadu Amani it fell again like just calling out their wives and like <laughs> these guys are acting super shy with top level disrespect <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. being like we toppled you both and there were all these jokes on social media being like, oh, like Ibn Arab's wife didn't even get to spend one night in the palace, like poor her. And then everyone's like, where's we dad? Like Bashir's wife. One guy at the sit-in was like completely, I saw this, I was just, it was so crazy. Like he was completely painted in gold paint. And they're like, who, what's this? And they're like, we dad's gold, we dad's right, gold. Right. And it was like literally a couple of days before they went and seized all his cash in the palace and stuff. Oh, so, um, so it was, it was just insane. Like it was like this huge party and you walk in and you immediately search. Like there are all these checkpoints and there are these volunteers who search everyone for like pens or like mirrors. Girls, they're always like, do you have a pen? Do you have a mirror? So it can't be used as a weapon. And they search everyone to make sure that they're not carrying any weapons or endangering anyone. And completely self-sufficient. Like all these like corners for tea you know, and like I'd already seen that people had started painting the walls, but by then like there was quite like a lot of like murals and stuff. Um, and there was like a huge stage and there was a screen where everyone watched the football like oh, at some yeah. point. And um, it was, it was, it was honestly, it was magical. Like I've never seen anything like it. It was really something special. And I'm like really glad that I witnessed it and walked through it as many times as I did. Cause I don't think if anyone explained it to me, I would have been able to know what it looked like or what it felt like. But it was really just people who'd come together for something that they felt was bigger than them. And they felt in that moment that they had succeeded. And that nullified all the loss that they had before because sure. they had succeeded. And they got rid of the man that they felt embodied everything that was bad in the country but again very hyper aware and, and people would say to me the revolution has only just begun but not everyone there were people that would just went home and were like all right enough we're let's done. clear yeah. the streets like what are you guys doing you're all just ma mavericks you're just trying to have a good time but with the end of Bashir came the end of the Islamists right for what they thought so the public order laws that had sort of governed public life that were introduced in the 90s, that were like really governed people's personal life. Quite hard line, like hard line. kind of, yeah. Yeah, like dress, public dress, <laughs> public like behavior, 
um, like even like hookah, like shisha, people couldn't smoke in the street. So suddenly it was like this liberation and people were like just doing whatever the hell they wanted. But not, I mean, not in the, in the sit-in site, it wasn't as bad, but it was like, there were areas where people would just be smoking weed and chilling and they were still, you know, monitoring the grounds, you know, still giving out free food and water. It felt like it was still running well. So that week we covered Bashir resigning and from literally from April 14th, they were trying to clear the barricades to open the roads. So um, Hamidi's brother actually made the announcement. So the RSF troops were sort of around all the checkpoints being like, can you clear the barricades so we can clean the streets? Mm. And the protesters' response was, you clean the government and we'll clean the streets. Right, yeah. And they literally all had brooms. They're like, we will clean the streets. We've managed to keep this place clean for this long. And genuinely, like people were really, like they treated the place with a lot of sanctity. Like they really didn't try and like vandalize it. And if anyone saw, I mean, there were cases of sexual harassment and it became an issue. And so when I arrived, literally someone touched me by accident this guy and I turned around and he was like I'm so sorry right like hyper aware yeah like yeah. hyper aware like I'm so sorry that I, I did I make you feel uncomfortable and I'm like oh it's all right like, just <laughs> let's keep moving um so sitting keeps going and they refuse to clear the barricades and every once in a while they'll come again and try and clear them and the protests will start again and there'll be call outs like guys they're trying to clean clear this roadblock and everyone will go to that roadblock and fortify it. Guys, the sit-in's pretty empty today. Everyone will leave their homes and go to the sit-in site and just try and keep it going mm. because they knew from very early on that was their strongest negotiation tool. And um, the opposition groups had already sort of formed this coalition and were starting negotiations with the Transitional Military Council, uh, what the government would look like over the transitional period before um, elections. So... Sit in, ongoing, Ramadan comes. Ramadan comes and they expect it to be dismantled. They think people won't be able to handle the heat. Um, but literally they're bringing in tents and stuff like tents and, and all the sort of, you know, dishes and stuff that they would need for Ramadan iftar to happen every day. So Ramadan comes around on the 5th of May. On the 8th of May, there's shootings. Um, and I'm on the ground and we drive into the sit-in site, one of the entrances, and there's an ambulance driving in behind us and we get down and literally someone had said they'd been shot by a sniper at that point in the head and Oof. was sent off in that. Oh place. yeah, I saw this, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's like, it's, it's bad. At that point, this is the first real violation of that space. And, you know, strangely enough, I had covered the like, lethal shootout that happened in Darfur in the Darfur city in Niala in North Darfur and one of the things in the piece like I did a piece to camera in the middle of the Khartoum sitting with everyone drinking tea this was before Ramadan being like this place is so like such a huge difference between what we've seen happening in Darfur in the North Darfur city and what we're seeing in Khartoum very safe place people are just relaxed drinking tea you know they're they're cracking down but outside of the capital mm. but it came that's what's crazy is that it came to the capital right. again, um, which people didn't expect. So on 8th of May, they're shooting up the place. It's the Hamidis RSF forces. Everyone that I met, eyewitnesses said that it was the RSF forces. And I, you know, went to Nile Street 
which is where they were shooting at people because what had happened, there had been an escalation because they tried to clear barricades on the Blunar Bridge, which was had become like a footpath into the Sitton. And in retaliation, the protesters um, built barricades on Nile Street, which is one of the main roads in Khartoum. It's literally like a through, uh, like a, a the vein of the city sort of going along the Nile, connecting the three cities of the peninsula capital. So a big, important road, which was what, what the point was, sort of disrupt the capital. The traffic was terrible for those days. Um, so yeah, so they started shooting at unarmed protesters on Nile Street. And six people were killed, including a military officer. And word, sort of the word was, they've stolen RSF uniforms. And it's sort of jihadi militias who've infiltrated the sit-in. And everyone I, like, and even people who were there had sort of fed into this idea of being like, oh no, 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 they stole the uniforms. So people believed it. Yeah, yeah loads of people believed right. it. Except the few people that would be like to me, hey, listen, I heard their accents. They're from the Arab tribes of Darfur. Like it w and I myself saw a convoy of RSF trucks lined up and we were on Nile Street and they decided to, and I asked people, I was like, are those the people that shot at you? And they were like, yeah. Why are they not shooting at you now? Mm. We don't know. And I can see their trucks, their hats, their license plates. I mean, unless someone stole, like literally went into the every warehouse they yeah, owned. Like, everything they <laughs> literally have. Yeah, from yeah. the hats to yeah. the shoes. Um, so they, so they, the convoy starts driving off. And as they're driving off, they're like firing heavy live ammunition, like seriously heavy. And they're just into the air con constantly. Then all these protests start running towards us. So we, we run a bit and then we stop. And I really thought that they just ran, someone ran and it set it off. So we're like, okay, there's still live, live firing live ammunition to the air. We go into the sit-in site, then all the casualties from further down in the road, when they were shooting in the air, started pouring into the sit-in, like the makeshift clinics. So the oh. wounded from that road started pouring in, more of them started pouring in as we walked into the sit-in site. So it was like, they, they fire live ammunition into the air but like it will shoot like basically shooting people not directly shooting uh -huh. other people yeah. so that day was crazy like the hospitals were like there was a, there's a hospital at the city and the makeshift clinics there were like it was 100 i think the final casualty count was 170 injured six people killed and that was shocking to people but it felt like you know what it's just it's 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 not enough to stop the negotiations. That's what people felt. We're going to keep negotiating. At that point, people still struggled to believe that the RSF had brazenly opened fire at protesters. Um, and even journalists I know were saying there is a third party that infiltrated the sit-in that was responsible for today's violence. And even a friend that I had to say, I don't. I was there. I don't think that's true. Do you think that's because like the celebratory? they just couldn't accept it do you know what I mean it's almost like it was so good that they got rid of Bashir because it just seems as an outsider it just seems like obviously it wasn't what they said it was obviously them you know I think it was a combination in terms of the people that wanted to believe that Hamiti and the RSF were good people that thought that if that was challenged there would be a civil war and then there are other people who really did believe that there were jihadi militias who wanted to get power back for Bashir but for me, you know, you know when you write a tweet about 
something that you know and then everyone tweets under it something different and you're like at some point you're like am i wrong mm, and then you're like yourself. you start to doubt yourself and then you're like actually no you were there i, I was there <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's no way that these guys it was convoys um but even but that's what happens and even people who saw them shoot and even people who got shot were like oh no no they wore the uniforms so th so this is you know the game was being played at a very high level like it really you think that people wouldn't believe it but people did want to like i don't know if they wanted to but people did think okay that couldn't be so f let's fast forward through may sit in this ongoing during ramadan you know community iftars every day people aren't planning to leave rain even comes and people don't leave and then um more attacks happen so over the course of may there were four attacks one was between officers and a stray bullet hit a tea lady who was six months pregnant and she, her and the baby died but so four attacks three of them were at on unarmed protesters so the fourth attack on unarmed protesters was on the 3rd of june so i left sudan on friday night um i had an investigation that i wanted to come back and edit here that i thought i, I knew i couldn't be in the country for so i come back friday night and the day before i fly out the third attack happens second in two two days uh someone's killed and i go to the city in that night and it felt like there was like a sense of petulance in the air like we're not going anywhere you guys want to get rid of us we're not going it was like anger but also some people were chilling and there was music as well and people were dancing and it was like the regular crowd that we saw minus people whose parents were like you're not allowed to go today yeah. and then the people who were angry who literally live at the sit-in and felt like their space was being violated consistently at that point so there was an anger in the air and there was a sense of like we're going to stay and fight this fight so, sorry when you say attacks it's basically them going in as far as i've understood it from watching your films they're basically going say move people don't move and then they just fire right no that's not what it was at that no. point it was literally like they were lashing out at them okay so what had happened at that point is that there were chants against the Jinjuit, against the RSF, where they would literally taunt them. And they would be like to them, um, there's this song by this rapper called Eamon Mao, and it's like, Jinjuit Rabato, which means Jinjuit are bandits. And so they would sing it to them. Right, so they just get angry. and They'd sing it to them and be like, Jinjuit are bandits. And what you have to remember about these guys is that they run the show in Darfur. They are the kings of the hill mm. in Darfur. No one can talk to them in Darfur. They'll get shot in the head. So for them to come to Khartoum and see these people that they think are like elitist little shits talking to them like that, it was like one of my friends who witnessed one of the first shootings said to me, Yusra, that wasn't a strategic attack. That was like them, like it was almost like a tribal clash. Like it was them lashing out. Just it was angry. Yeah. It was angry. Like, how are you going to talk to me like that? I'm the one with the gun. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't um, an assault in that way. They had instructions, definitely. They had instructions to clear the sit-in, to clear the barricades on Nile Street. But their attacks, their, their lethal attacks seemed to be sort of spontaneous. Um, so that night I go to the sit-in and then I leave on Friday night. And there are reports they're trying to clear the sit-in before Eid, before Ramadan ends, because they know that once Eid comes and Ramadan ends, like, 
there's no way people are leaving. Mm. If they fasted in that heat in that area, then they're not going to leave after Ramadan finishes. So, um, uh, Sunday night, there's talk of like a planned attack, and there are tweets from people that I, you know, trust who were there who said, you know, they're deploying, they're on ground, there are trucks, their trucks are everywhere. They sort of surrounded the area. The RSF quiet. trucks. RSF yeah. trucks and people said police trucks as well surrounded area surrounded the area from like early in the evening so I stay up and we were sort of used to at the start of the city you know the attacks sort of happened at like two to three so I stayed up and the electricity was out so everyone was in darkness waiting to hear something gunshots something had happened nothing still talk of them surrounding the area but at some point I read some tweets saying electricity is back on, people are playing card games, things are calm and stable. So I go to sleep and I wake up on, on the morning of Monday, 3rd of June, and I check my phone and I just immediately knew that something terrible had happened. And it was, it was a shock, honestly. And I think for everyone, even people who'd seen the first shootings, and I had obviously been on, on, on site for one of the shootings, even people who'd experienced the shootings, I don't think anyone expected it to be as brutal and as deadly as it was. You know, the videos and immediately you start thinking of all the people that you met there, you know, you check on all your friends and you're like, okay, everyone's accounted for, but what about that guy that I met the other day who helped me with this, who carried like the camera gear with us? Or what about this guy? And you're immediately starting to realize that you're not just grieving the people that were dying and, and the sort of death toll that just kept climbing throughout the day, you're grieving the loss of a space that mm. meant so much to everyone. So... So what happened? Sorry, they went in and just So what everywhere. happened was, so you see, so the video is basically, there's one video that we put in one of the films where it's this line of police uniforms. And I'll explain why I say police uniforms later, but... And they immediately, like, they make... They give them a... a a command and then they just rush towards the people filming so they had surrounded all the areas all the exit so they blocked off the exits and they had penetrate some had penetrated by foot some drove in and they just unleashed on everyone like most people who were there were beaten and shot at and you know there are reports of rape burning tents to the ground with people inside them um just it was complete and utter chaos like it was like it was war and they were the only people who were armed mm, yeah because everyone's searched when they go into the sit-in so everyone in the sit-in is doesn't even have a mirror on them or a pen so so we you know we put the videos together throughout the day and, and it was just shocking. It was really shocking. But it's the kind of shock that you don't really understand until it's like three days later and you're like, oh my God, that actually happened. Um, so how many people were killed? As of now, it was 100, over 100. So at least 100. Those are the bodies that they found. In the space of like, what, an hour or two? In the space of, yeah, so it was a few hours. Yeah. And it was, it's interesting that they waited till daylight to do it. Do you think they wanted to show you, like, we will kill you sort of thing? I think because they knew that people would be expecting it at night. Right. I mean, because of, because of historically what 
what people experienced that night, but also because, you know, one of the films I did was called The Night Watch, and it was focused on the people who actually protect the sit-in after mm. hours, and they call themselves The Night Watch because it's the one that historically has been the most difficult and scary to do. So they waited until literally sunrise, till the crack of dawn, to unleash on everyone. And at that point on Monday, you know, we report it, it's confirmed death count is 24. When we went to air, it was 27. By the end of the day, it was 35. So we still don't know on Monday what the scale of the damage is. Well, we know the sit-in has been completely emptied. And that's the thing, I think. I sort of was like, oh my God, it was... But it was the moment that I realized the sit-in site had been emptied where I was like, because I had seen how vast the area was and how well protected it was. Mm. That once you realized that they emptied the place, you knew what they must have had to do or what they must have done to empty it. Like broke from the back of the revolution, basically. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, what was this thing where they were throwing bodies even off the bridge? Was that, that yeah, incident? So, so what happened is the next day, so we don't, no one really understands the scale of it. And the next day, I finally get in touch with this intelligence source I have on the ground. He's a defected national security officer who trained the RSF and was on ground with them in South Kurdistan for three months and defected and sort of became a protester and lived at the sit-in and sort of, I personally think, has been trying to sort of pay penance for what he feels like he enabled. Mm. Um, so he calls me and he was there. So eyewitness. And he survived and he sort of moved around, but he surveyed the area as he was... Survive. I mean, the exits were blocked, so he was actually going around sort of surveying different points. And I speak to him and I write down what he's saying as testimony. And so the first thing he does is sort of explain to me the composition of the forces that were on the ground, the number, which he says was 10,000. And then he says to me, Yusra, what, what's the death count so far? And this was on Tuesday, so I was like, it's 40. And he was like, that's not even a quarter of the people that mm. were killed. He's like, I saw 15 people killed in front of me at least um, then he says, they, they, he was like, they are throwing bodies in the Nile. Um, and he was like, they're, they're shooting. They, she's like, they shot and killed them and threw them in the Nile. They beat them to death and threw them in the Nile. They hacked them with machetes and threw them in the Nile. And he actually later told me that this area called Columbia, which is this area that they used to sort of describe this, I wouldn't say shady, but this area across Nile Street where people, everyone went to drink weed, to drink and smoke weed and sort of the Transitional Military Council had increasingly started to sort of uh, alienate that area as this area of like corruption and right. contraband and like all these horrible things that never happen. Because um, people just like smoking weed and drinking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I even spoke to people who went to, you know, our parents' generation who were at the university across the street, the University of Khartoum, and they're like, that's always been the place where people go to drink. Yeah. Um, so that area that they said they went into clear, which actually was their cover for clearing the whole sit-in site, he said to me they lined up men and women and they raped them, pissed on them, and then they shot them dead. And threw Jesus them in the Christ. Um, so that area in particular was apparently dealt with with like brazen... They almost had permission to do it, that area, because it had been sort of sectioned off as this you know, do what you like. This is your little playground. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so he sort of talked me through what he saw, what he had witnessed, and I tweet out this thread. And everyone, and the, the thread kind of goes viral because it 
every no one at that point had known how bad it was and it gets translated into arabic and so even people in sudan are smsing it to because the internet is shut down for most people at that point so the transitional military council on tuesday mm. sort of in the afternoon shut down the main telecom providers um for internet stop any information to stop just videos, like videos literally yeah. Yeah, just like Bashir with the social media ban and um so it was it was huge it was a massacre and i don't think we realized until you know sources and people the next day started to confirm it even you know my eyewitness source i at that point couldn't I didn't know, I took his testimony as an eyewitness testimony. It was only after that things started to really prove that everything that he said had happened. Yeah. So someone being like, yeah, I was thrown in the Nile, but I can swim. Or, and then the next day they actually went to the Nile to look for bodies and they found nine just in one spot. You know, three women and, and six men. Um, and people, and then the bodies in the morgue that were burnt in the tents, which he said. So it just suddenly became apparent to everyone that this was they went to the extremes to really um, to make sure the sin was was emptied. And, you know, someone said, you know, people were saying, but also um, David Pilling, this F the FT Africa editor, said that Ford came to Khartoum. And it did. Mm. It came to Khartoum. They raised it to the ground, yeah. just like they do in the villages in that Ford. But even then, you know, the people in Khartoum probably only saw like 2% of what the people in that Ford in South Kurdistan saw. But it was just, when you look at it, even, you know, if you step back objectively and you look at the RSF and what they've done historically in Darfur and South Sudan, you realize that even then they were holding back um, and just dumping bodies in the Nile. They actually wanted to hide the evidence, which they would never do anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. So everyone's in a state of shock um, and it doesn't end there. The terror doesn't end there. It's just sort of the next week the rsf are just on the streets just terrorizing everyone and the way that people responded was to say um you know one of the opposition figures leading figures in the opposition coalition said to me i said you know are people going to go back to the sit-in site are they going to return and he was like no the whole of sudan is a sit-in now so what this uh, the sudanese professionals association who were organizing the protests from the start did is they um, made a call out for civil disobedience for everyone to barricade their roads and their neighborhoods and basically turn the country into a sin. So that's what people are doing. And there would just be confrontations at barricades. Um, you know, I, I got a call on Wednesday from my source being like, 24 people just died here. 30, you know, 30 people. RSF going yeah. to barricades and just, just shooting. shooting up. And I couldn't verify any of it. So mm -hmm. I couldn't even put out an increased death toll, but we were just... Everything that we reported was, yeah, continued violence, continued, you know, there was just all these reports of rape in the capital the last week, men and women being raped in the capital by rapid support forces. Um, the University of Khartoum, you know, last week was um, vandalized, burnt down. I spoke to a professor yesterday who said that basically um, they shot up they went into the University of Khartoum department, and this is just next to the sit-in site, and they would take, took everything, broke everything, and then if they couldn't carry it, they shot at it. Right, okay. Just complete, unleashed completely. Um, so, 
I mean, mediation, so negotiations completely stopped after the massacre happened, obviously. Um, and then Ethiopia, the AU, AU suspended uh, Sudan's membership until they transferred rules to the African, African Union. Union. So the African Union suspended Sudan's membership until there was a peaceful transition to civilian rule. And so um, the AU sent Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed to Sudan to mediate between the Transitional Military Council and the people, uh, no, and the opposition coalition. And he met with the TMC in the morning, then he met with the opposition coalition later on in the day, and literally one of the guys at the table from the opposition coalition got arrested shortly after he met with Abiy Ahmed. Um, and even with the TMC, I mean, their statements around the event were just... I mean, the first day, so on Monday night, Burhan, the, the chair of the Transition Military Council, puts out a statement, and he doesn't really show remorse. He says he salutes the RSF. He says um, they've managed to... Uh, I don't remember what he said, but anyway, he doesn't really show much remorse. Then... Tuesday, so all this information starts to come out on social media and on the internet about how bad it was. And then the US makes a call to Saudi Arabia, who's been pulling the strings obviously this whole time, um, who, you know, actually Hemeti and Burhan had both been in Saudi Arabia the week before, and Burhan had been in the UAE and in Egypt. So they the had vehicles I saw the the armored vehicles the UAE armored vehicles, provided, right? RSF armored vehicles are, are Emirati made. Um, provided by the UAE. Yeah. So, I mean, everyone, you know, everyone seems to think that they did this with the complete blessing of the Arab coalition because the troops in Yemen were at stake. And all the, you know, everyone talks about the troops in Yemen as the reason that the UA, the Saudi-led coalition are supporting the Transitional Military Council, but everyone seems to forget that Bashir sold the country for parts to Saudi, to the UAE. Um, and there's so much agricultural land in the north of Sudan that has been given to Saudi and the UAE with corrupt 99-year leases. So all their investment would be under review if right. the civilian government came to power. So they have a lot of money to lose. They have a lot of money to lose. Dam projects, agricultural land, you know, whatever you can think of in Sudan has somehow been rented to the Gulf. So... They're, they're heavily invested. Um, so yeah, then Hemeti comes out with a statement uh, saying that people are impersonating the RSF and terrorizing uh, people. And so, yeah, it's just been a week of craziness. Where are the military while this is all going on? So while this is going on, so, the, so on Monday, on the, on the day of the massacre, the military basically have said, and, and my source said this as well, that they had their weapons stripped of them. Do you think that's true? I mean, I've seen a video with the man with the gun when the the attack was happening. But what what other military sources have said is that they told him they were just going to empty out that Columbia area. They didn't tell them they were going to empty out the city. Mm. And then another, and then my source told me that the the sort of the mid ranking officers and the lower ranking officers he knows were sort of crying the next day, saying they denounced the military council and it doesn't represent them. Um, and but at the same time, there's a lot of reports that the army is going to have this confrontation with the RSF and they're going to take back power from the RSF. Because what we can understand now is that Transitional Military Council 
has no control of Hamidi and the RSF. They it's can't control rogue. him. I mean, he's a he's still very much a part of the transition military council because he has such a big say. But there, you know, everything that I'm hearing is that they can't control him and he's spiraled. And he can't control his troops because he, he is not a trained military leader. He's not a trained commander. He's a warlord, basically. He's a warlord. Point, yeah. And his militias are not trained trained troops. You know, they don't know, like, martial law. They don't know sort of the, the etiquette that, you know, the army will have mm. about warfare and about dispersal and about all these things. Which is why I find it easy to believe that their reaction was emotional and sort of resentment rather than an actual planned strategy to kill everyone. Because Hemeti has been working very hard to clean his image and very hard. He even has a media advisor who's a journalist Mm -hmm. and a corrupt one at that. But he he really has worked hard to, to sort of make himself look like he could be a head of state. But surely that's all gone now. I mean, who knows? Because, you know, when, when, when all the heads of missions and ambassadors met him when he became vice chair, it's not like Darfur hadn't happened, but they still met him. And yeah. there was an amnesia about Darfur. So, you know, I'm not surprised that he thinks he could survive this. Um, but at the end of the day, when you see them throwing bodies into the Nile, you know that they realize that they shouldn't have done that because it's in the capital and it's under everyone's... Everybody's watching Everyone's now. watching yeah. now. You know, maybe if they'd done that on the 25th of December, people might not be aware, but people mm. have been following this closely. This has become a big news story, but she has stepped down and this is a, trans- a transitional period. Seems like the worst possible point to do something like this in the international you know, eyes. It is, but that still hasn't made a difference. Because at the end of the day, you know, the UN action was blocked by China and Russia. Unamid is shutting down, and even today, um, Al Jazeera reported that Unamid said that the RSF is trying to control Unamid compounds in Darfur. They're asking for them to give them control to the RSF, um, to give them to the RSF to control. And at the same time, today there was a massacre reported in Darfur in in a in a in a town mm-hmm. that no one will hear about because the internet isn't working. And where are the Islamists in all of this? They're still around, surely. <laughs> the Islamists are definitely around i mean um there there is uh there is an islamist called abdel hay who um is a known isis supporter um, okay yeah Great. casual yeah and he was trying to rile people up to sort of go into sit in and he was like you know these guys are chaos and we need to and it's a jihad and my source reported that individuals from his group were armed that day and joined um joined the forces that dismantled the sit-in and you know any doubts was you know kind of any doubts that that happened was was sort of quelled when he did a speech and he 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 congratulated the Janjaweed and and actually supported the Janjaweed for for what they did to to the to the sit-in so he has like armed islamists so he i mean he doesn't on record he doesn't have you know arms but what my source said was that they were on the ground with guns which aren't difficult to yeah. to get what about the people because like how i mean i know it's it's a very bad situation with all these guns from firing at them but there seems to be like no possibility of resistance it seems like a, a you know like an armed resistance from the people well so people have guns in their homes okay but what there's been a lot of pressure from everyone to keep it peaceful sure yeah. so so there have been so this last week 
uh, there have been reports that there have been call outs from mosques for people to take arms and to go out on the streets. And then when, when citizen journalists I know have gone to the mosque and spoken to their moms, they're like, we never said that. Really? And then they'll speak to eyewitnesses who said, yeah, we saw a truck with a megaphone go around. And then so people have this paranoia that could be very much justified and true that they're trying to get them to take arms so that they can really like have a civil war scenario and go full force. So now they say, look, they've got guns, we have to, they're yeah. terrorists, right? Yeah, but in, over the last week, the RSF have gone into people's homes and people have left... Um, like left their homes and the soldiers come back and be like no 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 don't evacuate their homes they want to take over your homes because they're all like sleeping in their trucks so they want homes to live in and then you know people in neighborhoods will round up the people that are wearing civilian clothes that are you know it's there are there's resistance within the neighborhoods with the barricade building with people like they'll they've beaten up you know like in, you know, imposters who've come in and tried to sort of um, infiltrate, infiltrate, yeah. sort of, like they've beaten up the infiltrators in the neighborhoods, but they've really been adamant not to to go out with guns. Um, How long do you think that will last? Because I, I mean, it's incredible they resolve not to do that, but they know that. I think if it lasts, it will be because people know that even if a few of them have guns it's not going to be enough to to keep them you know at bay for long they see their tanks they see their 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 guns and they know that they have the backing of the regional actors and they know i mean this has been you know when i got there people were like this is an enlightenment revolution it's not just it's an awareness revolution it's not just political there were like people around the streets you know giving talks like speakers corner style mm. like gatherings all over the city and they really tried to drilling certain um, facts into people's minds about what it takes to, to peacefully overthrow a government. And people have been sticking to it, um, to, to the most part, for the most part. They haven't, you know, they throw rocks, you know. They, they, they like, throw slurs at the RSF. They don't, they know that if they get a pistol out, then that gives them full permission to go, right. to go ham on them. So what do you think, I mean, just to run this up, what do you think is going to happen now? Because to me now, after speaking to you, it seems really bad. I think that there is going to be a confrontation between the army and the RSF. You reckon, yeah? I think it's like imminent. Um, and I think that is going to be scary because who knows what will happen and what lengths the RSF will go to to survive. How powerful are the army? Would you say like they'll easily roll over the RSF or, or no? I mean, I think in terms of numbers, the army outnumbered the right. RSF. In terms of weapons, in terms of like proper artillery, it needs to have sort of a support from generals for it to be a proper confrontation sure. and for them to have access to sort of all the artillery and the tanks and stuff they have. So technically, what would need to happen would be a counter coup. One thing you need to know about Hemeti is that he was brought into the capital for Bashir's protection. So he was never an... A revolutionary force or even an independent militia he was hired by the government in the early 2000s to crush the Darfuri rebellion then they were transformed into the rapid support forces and trained by national security apparatus to quell the rebellion in South Kordofan they have always been an, an auxiliary force mm -hmm. they were never independent and you know only maybe in their early days when they were really truly devils on horseback and just riding around on horses so government paramilitary, basically. Government yeah. paramilitary who, I mean, Bashir, I mean, 
I know someone who literally heard Bashir call Himati Himati, which means protection in Arabic. Um, so he'd be like, Himati, my protection. Um, so, yeah, a counter coup to the, I don't want to call it a fake coup, but to the palace coup that seems to be the, you know, the, in, the palace coup that seems to have been created for the survival of the deep state and engineered by pro-regime or, you know, regime-aligned um, individuals to ensure that, you know, the system wouldn't be disrupted too much. Mm. And Himiti was the perfect man because he was loved by Saudi, the UAE. He was trusted by Bashir until recently. Um, he has troops who are extremely loyal to him and who really don't have an affinity to the people in Khartoum because they see themselves as better than, you know, in terms of their tribalists. Mm. Um, They've been all over Darfur, like, murdering people. For exactly. Yeah. Like, very, like, little moral compass. <laughs> yeah. Um, limited moral compass. Um, so... Whatever happens in terms of an army confrontation, if it's led by generals, that will be a coup, a real coup. Um, because that means that this... I mean, what happened with the Transitional Military Council when the massacre happened was that any illusion of them being truly transitional was shattered. Mm. And for them, you know, you know that actually the day that they negotiated, they were negotiating an agreement that was meant to be signed on the evening that the massacre happened. And I've spoken to negotiators and mediators who were in the room who were like, we drafted the agreement, we were ready to go, it was mm. gonna be signed. So what that shows is that they couldn't control Himiti, they couldn't control his troops. But at the same time, there is no doubt that orders had been made to clear the sit-in, yeah. or yeah. at least the area of Colombia. So, one thing that seems clear to me now, I mean, correct if I'm wrong, I keep seeing in the media, it's a military junta, but it's not really, it's a, like a paramilitary junta, no? It's, it's a military junta that is being sort of superseded by a paramilitary group right, that right. is beyond anyone's control. If the military do actively fight them, kind of they'll be fighting on the side of the people, no? If, if the army... Yeah. Yeah, so if the army fight against them, then it would be for the people. But wow. the people do not trust the army anymore because, you know, what happened is a lot of a lot of people you would say were like kind of like woke from the beginning and sort of new. They were like, yeah, thanks for the coup, guys, but we're not going to trust you. And then this has validated those people who found it difficult to trust the army and found it difficult to believe that the army wanted their best interest. Because they didn't intervene. Because they intervened, but it seemed to be sort of ambitious generals. But what, what happened was when people were shooting, when the security forces came into the city in the early days, in the first week, it was the low-ranking soldiers who defended the people. Right, okay. It was the low-ranking soldiers who were killed while defending the people. And it was the ambitious generals who came in in the days after and said, we're with the people. You know, very sort of late in the game when mm. they could see the, the, the potential of the situation, the political potential. So... 
I mean, even now people say, you know, I have friends at the sit and they were like, we don't even fuck with the other army people. We just fuck with the 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 low ranking soldiers. The ground troops, basically. The ground troops. Yeah. But we, yeah, we don't we don't really feel any affinity or loyalty to the to the to the generals. Um, so even now, it would take a lot for the army to get the people's trust back. It would take a lot for the army to make people think that a counter coup isn't just another opportunist coup that is an extension of, of, of the regime. So, yeah, um, we're just going to have to wait and see and hope that we even know what's going on with the internet blackout and we get to actually see what happens. Okay, well, thanks very much. Um, is there anything else you want to say? Uh, no. And where can people get hold of you? Like, I've seen you like obsessively keeping track of this, which I think is really good. Where can they find all your work and um, you know, follow you and all that? So, Channel 4 News, if you type in my name, all the Sudan coverage from December will be on it. But Twitter is usually where I'm just posting, like, mostly daily live updates on the situation. So, my Twitter is at Yusra Barad, Y-O-U-S-R-A-E-L-B-A-G-I-R. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Jake. That was Yusra Elbegir talking about the situation with the Sudan uprising and how it's kind of unraveling right now. Do follow her on Twitter if you want to keep updated with uh, what's going on over there. She's keeping everybody updated every single day with new developments, which are happening quite fast. In fact, since we last spoke, there's already new developments with a possible um, resolution with the coalition and the people, but um, nobody quite knows at the moment. This episode was sponsored by the defensepost.com, defense with an S. Check them out for your daily dose of conflict reportage, all of that. And do consider supporting us on the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash popular front. It's the only way really that we keep going. You can find bonus episodes, access to the Discord, all sorts of stuff there. To keep track of what's going on with Popular Front, follow me on Twitter, twitter.com slash Jake underscore Hanrahan. Or follow the Popular Front Twitter, that's twitter.com slash popularfrontco, same as the site, popularfront.co. There are articles there, the videos, the podcast episodes, everything in one place. Uh, the support page gives you other options as well, like a lot of people don't like to use Patreon. So yeah, so some people um, rather donate via the support site, so there's PayPal, Bitcoin, all sorts of stuff, popularfront.co slash support. Follow us on Instagram, that's instagram.com slash popular.front and YouTube, youtube.com slash popularfront. Subscribe and hit the bell, otherwise you will not be notified or anything because YouTube is weird. Thank you very much to the following people on the Patreon. They are Adam Berg Snyder, Andrew Fife, Axel Iverson, Brian McLaughlin, Callum Ross, Chad Walker, Dan Dunham, Daniel Shearer, Darby, Diana Gorvanek, Elizabeth Benicki, Emily Molly, Fletcher Tate, Joanne Stocker, Jack Mayhoff, Joel Tambusi, James from the Discord, Kyle N. Payne, Lawrence Abrahams, LH, Margaret Bowling, Michael Euler, Noah, Ari from the Discord, Patrick Bronte, Peter McCormack, Cubal, Russia Alakidi, Ryan Sandercock, Skartoon Music, Scott Jonesy, Sebastian from the Discord, Sarushe Hawazi, Stephen Davila, Teddy, Tom Lochrin, 
Tony Bin, Vida Provost and Zachary Hinch. Thank you very much for keeping this moving forward. Music in this episode, the intro was by an artist called Home and the outro was by Son of Old, the popular front music producer. Soon we're going to be doing a limited edition giveaway, um, basically a tape with the Synthline EPs, both of them on there, and extra tracks. So it'll be like Synthline LP. It'll all look very cool. It, it looks good. I think it's going to be good. Um, so go to popularfront.bigcartel.com. That will be out there in the next few weeks. Um, and all the merchandise is on there as well. To follow Son of Old, go to soundcloud.com slash son dash of dash old. 